Well, welcome everyone to the uh, COVID-19 and Hematological Malignancies Expert Roundtable. Uh, it's a pleasure to host you today. My name is Dr. Joseph McHale. I'm a hematologist by training. I'm a, a professor at the Translational Genomics Research Institute here in Phoenix, which is affiliate of City of Hope. And I'm delighted to uh, share this roundtable today with a number of friends. I'll have them uh, introduce themselves shortly. Uh, but joining me today is Dr. John Leonard, Dr. Michael Satlin, and Dr. Nina Shaw. And I'll shortly allow themselves to introduce themselves. Before that, I'll just want to give you a bit of an outline of what the goal is. This is the first of a six-part series uh, where we're trying to dive a little bit deeper to understand more fully uh, what COVID-19 has meant in hematological malignancy. Today, we're starting with an expert roundtable where I have uh, two uh, world-renowned hematologists joining, with, uh, joining me from the myeloma world and the lymphoma world, and also an infectious disease specialist. And we're going to have a conversation today thinking a little bit more uh, about what has COVID meant to us in the care of our patients with hematological malignancies. And we'll look at the impact it's had on our practice and uh, the kinds of treatments that uh, we may have either for the disease itself or how we're treating our cancer patients uh, throughout this. In the coming several weeks, to give you a bit of an appetizer and encourage you to join us in future events, I'll be diving a little bit deeper uh, with Dr. Shaw and with Dr. Leonard into what this explicitly means for a myeloma practice and what this means for lymphoma patients. And then we're going to have another expert roundtable where our focus uh, then will be more on patient advocacy uh, because this has had a tremendous toll on our patients. And so we'll have a similar discussion like today, but uh, getting a more sense of a, a patient's perspective and obviously, uh, and furthermore, have an opportunity to discuss myeloid diseases. We'll then also have some deeper dives, both with the patient advocate and uh, with a specialist in myeloid diseases. So that's our plan. Uh, and we really hope you can join us for each of these sessions. Well, before I go much further, I'd like uh, the guests who are with me to introduce themselves so that you can uh, uh, join us today and know who's with us. This is a CME accredited event. So at the end, uh, there'll be a form for you to fill out an evaluation so you can obtain your CME credit. Uh, it's, it's wonderful that we can provide that to you. But let me start with our guests. Uh, perhaps let's go from, from West Coast to East Coast. So we'll start with you. Uh, Nina Shaw, can you introduce yourself to us? Hi, and thank you so much for having me, Joe. My name is Dr. Nina Shah, and I'm an associate professor here at University of California, San Francisco, also known as UCSF, and I specialize in multiple myeloma, and I'm really excited to be able to talk to you uh, to bring different perspectives from different parts of the countries and different diseases. Wonderful. Thanks, Nina. Uh, moving all the way to the Northeast, uh, we have Dr. Michael Satlin. Hi, my name is Michael Satlin. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell in New York City. Uh, I'm an infectious disease physician, and most of my clinical care is doing consults for patients with hemalignancies and transplant recipients. Uh, and uh, of course, our area in New York City in general has been hit very hard by COVID. And so we've had a lot of firsthand experience in, in managing these patients, and I'm, I'm really uh, grateful to be here. Well, we're very thankful to have you, not just as an ID specialist, but one who spends a lot of time with hemalignancy patients. So uh, we, uh, and we understand that you work closely with uh, John Leonard, and uh, I apologize that you have to face that, but um, uh, now we'll turn it to John to introduce himself. 
Hi, I'm John Leonard. I'm a professor and senior associate dean at Wild Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital, uh, also in New York. And uh, I focus on lymphoma clinical care patients and clinical and translational research and uh, also work closely with uh, Dr. Satlin and his colleagues. And uh, we really have a great relationship. They are in our clinic all the time and on the floor seeing our patients, as many of you have. Uh, with your own uh, ID consultants. And so uh, we have shared uh, patients and also uh, knowledge and experience in trying to figure out what to do with, with patients with COVID and hemolignancy. So it's great to be here. Well, thanks very much for the three of you joining me today. It's, it's really wonderful to have you, uh, you're, you're a particular expert in your fields and uh, to be able to have that kind of collaboration, John, as you mentioned, is particularly important. As you can see, we focus today uh, in, in California and in, in San Francisco, of course, and in New York as being two of the hotspots. In some of our future uh, discussions, we'll also be looking uh, at the impact it's had on practices and patients in Seattle and in Chicago, uh, other areas where, of course, we've seen a prolific impact uh, of this virus. Well, let's first talk a little bit about the virus. We're, we're going to understand a little bit more about it uh, before we dive into the impact it's had on our practices. Uh, and so I'm gonna to turn it to you, Dr. Satlin. Tell us a little bit from your perspective. Uh, remember, we're not uh, virologists, we're not experts here in that area, but uh, tell us a little bit more about this virus uh, and um, what we as oncologists and hematologists in practice will wanna know about this uh, awful disease. No, thanks for, uh, so um, I don't wanna to belabor too many points about coronavirus, but, but I'd like to share with you perhaps why it's been such a problem. Uh, uh, start out there and then perhaps go into uh, a little bit about, uh, you know, how the virus presents and, and, and different aspects uh, that I think have really contributed to this pandemic. So uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, so it's a coronavirus. And um, uh, as many of you probably know, uh, there are four seasonal coronaviruses that frequently cause the common cold. It's possible in somebody who's highly immunocompromised, they cause disease that's slightly worse than that. Um, but those four seasonal coronaviruses are very different and distant genetically to the SARS-CoV viruses. And so the first uh, beta coronavirus or, or was SARS-CoV-1, uh, which caused, uh, 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 which is, actually most similar of all the coronaviruses to the, this SARS-CoV-2 virus. And um, that caused pretty severe outbreak, caused people to be very sick with very high case fatality rates, but was essentially able to be quarantined over the course of a year in 2003, uh, predominantly in East Asia and in Toronto and the North, North America. And then we had MERS, which was Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus in 2013. That's a little bit more distance to this virus, SARS-CoV-2, uh, than SARS-CoV-1 is, but also marked by very high case fatality rates and almost killed people too quickly. Uh, because for both SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, um, in general, people were shedding virus at the same time that they developed severe illness. And, and that's important because with SARS-CoV-2, which obviously has only recently appeared on this planet, um, People shed virus two days, two and a half days, three days before they get sick. And in fact, their peak period of infectiousness is probably before they develop symptoms and then right as they develop symptoms. And so that's one thing to think about 
as far as why this virus has been so difficult to control, whereas SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, although even more lethal on a per patient basis, didn't spread as quickly. Um, we all know that SARS you know, originated uh, in China and there was an outbreak in China and then eventually pretty quickly probably went to other areas in East Asia, went to Europe and then came to the United States. And certainly, you know, we didn't recognize probably how extensive uh, SARS-CoV-2 was uh, in the United States, partly because a lot of our testing algorithms that we were working on initially were related to people coming out of China and other countries in East Asia, when the reality is, although there was some introduction by China, a lot of the introduction had already happened by uh, through Europe. Um, and so, uh, you know, as I'm sure all of you know, the virus now uh, has uh, caused uh, over 70,000 deaths uh, in the United States, uh, infected over 250, uh, sorry, over, over 1 point, I think 1.5 million people. Um, it, around the world, it's, uh, 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 you know, obviously, been, and the United States actually is the, has the most number of cases and deaths of any other country in the world, of course, although we have a much larger country than many of the other countries in Europe. And if you look per capita, you know, countries like Spain and Italy have actually had a higher death rate than the United States. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, so I touched on the infectivity of this virus, which is why it's um, uh, uh, been so difficult to contain. And, and as I said, that's because people shed virus before they become symptomatic. And that was a really, diff that makes it very difficult. So people can be out walking around the streets, they can be with you know, with uh, in close contact with other people, even for a relatively short period of time and feel perfectly well. And so the advice of, you know, staying home if you're sick, of course, is good advice. But what was quickly realized is a lot of people were out and about riding the subways in New York City um, and uh, probably spreading virus and uh, not knowing, you know, that they were either going to get sick or as we know, many people don't get sick. So it's a little bit hard to say of all the people who actually acquire the virus, what percent develop symptoms? Um, the best data we have are data where you kind of test everybody in a certain location, like the cruise ships. Uh, there have been some prison data that have been tested. And I suspect probably about a half the people at least uh, actually acquire the virus and then don't have any symptoms. Among the people who have symptoms, uh, the majority have relatively mild disease. Uh, and uh, overall, about you know about uh, five to ten percent of the people uh, will be hospitalized. Probably about five percent will have severe disease or need to go on a ventilator, and a smaller percentage of that will actually pass away from the disease. Now, if you look at the case fatality rates, it looks a lot worse. So you know, if you look at case fatality rates from here in Europe, if you just look at the number of people infected and the number of deaths you'll see that it looks like, actually, it seems to be higher than 3% that was reported in China. It's more like 6 7%. You know, if you just look at CNN and look at those two numbers and divide them together. Um, and part of that is because early on, one of the features of this disease is that when people get really sick from this, um, they can stay on the ventilator for a long time. And a lot of the deaths, unfortunately, are not occurring right away, but they're occurring in people who've been on the ventilator for one, two, three, four weeks. So over time, that number of deaths starts increasing. Um, and so it's gone up from 3% to say six to 7%. But we know that the number of detected cases is a vast underestimation of all the people that have been affected. And now we actually have some data from serologic studies to help us. So um, there've been some data out of California, 
Uh, there have been some data from New York where it seems somewhere between 20 and 25% of people who participated in these seroprevalence studies have been exposed to the virus. So if you do some quick math, you'll see that it's probably the infection fatality rate is somewhere around 1%, 0.6%. Uh, so that may not sound like too much, but it really is uh, a high number if you compare it to the seasonal flu, where the case fatality rate is 0.1%, and probably the infection fatality rate is much lower than that. Uh, so, so, Michael, if I can interrupt yeah. you for a sec, just so I'm capturing this as we go sure. through. I mean, this is really valuable information. One thing I didn't mention to you or to all of you from the start is, unfortunately, I actually lived through SARS in Toronto. So we, I was right in, in downtown Toronto. And so a lot of these practices that we have now of, you know, checking everybody's temperature coming into the building and various things we've had our practices, I've experienced. And I remember distinctly at that time, one of the things that helped us get ahead of this was that we had basically concluded that the only way this disease could be transmitted is when somebody was symptomatic. So if I'm hearing you correctly, number one, we're probably underestimating the number of people that have this. Number two, people can spread this asymptomatically. Not that it's a bad thing to tell people who are sick to stay home, but that's clearly not enough. Uh, thirdly, that unfortunately, also different than SARS back in the day in 2003, 2004, patients, when they do get sick, they can be on the ventilator for a very long period of time. So there seems to be a, a, a long lag between, unfortunately, infection and death in those patients that are going to succumb to it. And then I think the fourth point I learned from you is that the rate here of death is, it, it sounds like about 10 times that of the common flu. Uh, when you just ballpark said 0.1 to, to 1. Uh, am I capturing you correctly? I'm just trying to summarize a little bit so that we can all be on the same page. But, but uh, I mean, I'm learning a great deal here from you. No, I think that's, yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, uh, and to me, these are the features. The reason why I'm kind of opening with all of this as opposed to the, you know, the standard, you know, this is the epidemia is because I want to try to explain why this has been such a problem. Uh, it's the infectivity. Like you said, temperature checks probably will help, but given that up to 50% it's thought of all transmissions are either due to pre-symptomatic, so that means like somebody's gonna get sick, but they're not yet sick, or people who were totally asymptomatic. So, you know, temperature checks and having sick people stay home is really gonna stop only half of the transmission. So it's the transmissibility. And then it's the fact that, um, uh, the lethality of this is, it, although it may not quite be as high as SARS per patient, a SARS-CoV-1 uh, or MERS, it is still really high. Um, now, I want to point out some differences too between, let's say, other differences between SARS and flu, because this is commonly asked. So one peculiar and wonderful thing about, if there's a wonderful thing about this virus, is it does not seem to cause children to get sick. You could imagine how horrible this would be if, if it did cause, and for example, influenza, we see frequently see, you know, kids get sick, you know, people, you know, newborns, you know, have a high, high risk of getting really sick. And we don't really see this, you know, there are some kind of unusual manifestations perhaps in kids, uh, but we don't really know why that's the case. Similarly, pregnancy, you know, pregnancy with influenza, we think that people are at much higher risk. We're not quite seeing that uh, at least as far as the data that are available with this disease. So who is at high risk of getting sick? Well, age is, plays a big role. So 
um, you know, people the, uh, over the age of 60, 70, 80, the mortality rates start shooting up almost exponentially. And then it's people with um, underlying conditions, but these are unfortunately pretty common underlying conditions. Obesity plays a, is a big risk factor. In fact, you know, if you look in our ICUs uh, and you look at the people, because not everybody in our ICUs with SARS-CoV-2 is 60, 70, 80. Some of them are in their 40s or in their 30s. But if you look at them, the majority of those patients have obesity. So we don't know exactly why that is. Why is obesity a major risk factor? Hypertension, you know, and it doesn't, there's a lot of debate about whether ACE inhibitors or ARBs actually help or hurt, given that the ACE2 receptor is the receptor for this virus. I think a lot of that is still unsettled. Um, but these are common conditions, hypertension, diabetes. And we know that these are major risk factors for getting sick with this virus. But what we don't know is sort of are the classic immunocompromising conditions that we think of, such as people with hematologic malignancies, does that confer an increased risk? And I would say at, at this point, I'm not sure that that's the case. Uh, we don't have a lot of data to suggest that that's happened. And, and I would say at least uh, on our, anecdotally, I'd, I'd appreciate uh, uh, Dr. Leonard's uh, thoughts on this, but I thought it was gonna be much worse in the patients that I consult on, heme malignancies and transplant recipients. I thought we'd be decimated uh, through this. And although we have had patients with myeloma, lymphoma, leukemia, bone marrow transplantation. We have had patients come in very sick, some of whom had to be intubated and died. For the most part, the numbers haven't been exactly what I thought we would see. Um, and that, that's really helpful, Michael, because I think that's gonna transition us very nicely now into getting the experience of, of Dr. Leonard, as you mentioned, and Dr. Shaw. You know, I have the privilege of doing some work internationally. I usually spend about a quarter of my time international. So we've been polling our our hematologists around the world. And it, it is a bit striking to me that this susceptibility that we would have anticipated when we think of immunocompromised patients does not seem to be as high, even in just general cancer patients, let alone heme malignancies. As I speak to many of my colleagues in Asia and even to a certain degree in Europe, that just like you've said, we have a lot of patients that are, that are older, that have obesity, have diabetes and hypertension, certain lung diseases, but perhaps not as many as you would have expected with cancer or specifically heme malignancies or bone marrow transplant. I know in a future event, we're going to talk to our colleagues in Seattle, but that was particularly their, their point too. They had almost none of their bone marrow transplant patients uh, experience this. And so, so this really, uh, uh, you know, is a bit of a mystery as, as we try to piece it together. Maybe, maybe what, why don't well, we'll stay in New York for just a minute, John, why don't I turn to you and, and ask you, Kind of what has been your experience? Have you had that? Obviously, you work closely with Dr. Sadlin, so I'm sure you better that, that you know each other well. But but if you had the same experience where you were perhaps anticipating more uh, of your own heme malignancy patients to get COVID uh, and did not, or actually have you seen a lot of them? Uh, what what has been your experience? Yeah, I I would say that it's uh, it is. So number one, it, do, it has dominated thinking. And I think the number one question from patients probably 10 or 15 times a day is, am I more likely to get this? Um, which is, you know, we just talked about, we don't know the answer to that. And obviously getting it versus getting sick from it are two different things or getting extra sick from it. Um, but, but clearly, you know, we, we have seen patients, as, as you heard from Dr. Satlin, across the spectrum. Um, sometimes they've been the classic presentations. I can tell you one patient that I had that uh, was in the middle of second-line therapy for large cell lymphoma, 
coming in for mid-cycle checks, was having some dehydration, was having some diarrhea, um, you know, really things that were in the spectrum of what we typically see with chemotherapy. And, you know, it just seemed a little bit more than normal. And, you know, we said, let's check for COVID. Turns out that's what it was. And the patient ended up getting admitted and had, you know, about a week-long hospitalization. So, you know, I think that is that particularly worse? I would say, I don't know. It's probably in the spectrum of what is seen. And I don't know that I would say that, you know, she wasn't on a ventilator, wasn't having major respiratory issues as an example. Um, but that being said, I think that we have to, until we know otherwise, we have to assume that like most other infections, our patients are at greater risk of complications if they get the infection. And until we have otherwise, I think we have to treat this very warily and say that the best thing is you don't get it and be suspicious of it in people who are having clinical symptoms that could be the infection, um, because at least that's going to keep us, we may not be able to intervene specifically, but at least we know that that person needs to be monitored you know, more closely for potential complications such as thrombosis, such as respiratory failure, et cetera. No, thanks, John. That's actually very, very insightful. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to indicate that if we haven't seen as many cases that that gives people a false sense of security. I think, I think that's, that's particularly important. I, I do think that it's good that a lot of our own patients have learned over the years. I mean, we're obsessive hand washers in our clinic. Yeah. Exactly. Any patient who's ever gone through a bone marrow transplant, I got to turn to Nina now, who's one of the queens of transplantation in the country. You know, we teach our patients very carefully how to literally socially distance and wash their hands and wear masks at strategic times. But uh, Nina, what, what's been your experience on the West Coast here, out out in San Francisco? Uh, has it been similar to what we've heard from Michael and John? Yeah, I think. Um well, fortunately, in San Francisco, actually, has been less hard hit than New York. Um, and I, we don't know what the reasons are. And actually, there's just been a lot of back and forth about this. Did we, uh, we didn't win the Super Bowl, so we didn't have a parade. You know, there are all these little things that can change. I know it was horrible. But, um, and, and in L.A., there have been more cases. But one of the things I think John points out really importantly is that, and you pointed out that we have patients already on high alert. So one of the things we've been trying to do is mitigate risks for coming here to the hospital. Um, and so if you have any symptoms that you're mild, we don't actually want you to come to the hospital. And if they are more than mild and, and concerning, then we want you to come to a separate respiratory screening clinic, get ruled out, and, and figure out what's going on then. And in that case, in that way, we've only had two to three, four percent people positive who've been tested. And we think in the Bay Area, it's you know less than one percent. Um, prevalence and and so we're not sure what to do with that now because exactly as Mike was saying there's probably a lot of asymptomatic carriers way more than we thought so with all of that in mind and knowing that in all of our heme malignancies we've only had one maybe two people be truly uh, positive and those people actually weren't even uh, that symptomatic knowing that we've started having some cautious optimism uh, and really just caution, I should say, um, to try to find that happy medium, delivering care when we can deliver it and when we think it's necessary, but avoiding unnecessary things that we think are putting patients at risk for no reason. If there's really no reason for them to have to make that visit, uh, then then we're moving away from that. Uh, but we do think, I think we're, we're feeling here that we're 
we want people to get therapy if possible because we've had risk mitigation techniques or tactics here at the hospital. That's really, really helpful, Nina. And I think that's going to help us transition into our next sort of phase as we think a little bit about how we've adjusted uh, treatment for patients. So if, if I'm hearing you correctly, there is some of this cautious optimism that maybe our patients aren't quite as at high risk as, as we would initially imagine, but that for, for uh, but absolutely does not cause us to uh, not take these same precautions. And I know Michael will jump all over me if I, if I don't uh, make it clear that we want to make sure that we're, we're taking those same precautions. Um, and then we can start thinking a bit more about what are those programmatic um, uh, precautions that we've taken separately from treatment. Because I do want to come back to that treatment question. You know, as one physician called me last week and said, you know, if a lion is about to jump onto you, you're not going to worry if there's a snake in the bush next to you that you're jumping into. You know, we have some people that have very aggressive disease with malignancy, and we want to make sure that we don't um, uh, under-treat them or inappropriately treat them when they really need it for fear of something else. On the other hand, of course, we have to keep that in balance with the fact that despite this, as Michael shared with us earlier on, I mean, sadly, tens of thousands of Americans and tens of thousands of people on this planet have died from this disease. But on that programmatic basis, maybe John, I'll come to you first on this. Um, what have you done differently with your clinics? Are, are you um, exclusively seeing patients on telehealth or video health-like visits? Or are you uh, reducing frequency of visits? Have you changed the structure of your waiting room or screening procedures when people come in? Have you, have you separated out your hemalignancy clinic from other clinics? What, what sorts of things have you done in New York? And then I'll, I'll ask uh, Michael uh, for his comments on that afterwards. But uh, John, what have you done in New York? Sure. So a, a couple of different things. I mean, and, and I think these are probably things that are either being done or are doable for just about anybody watching this in their practice to some version of an, or another. Um, number one is we've, we've gone a lot to telemedicine, and I think that is the way it's going to be forever now. Not, not to this extent necessarily, but I do think that telemedicine is here to stay. We've had that available. We're on Epic, like many people are. And we've had that option. And I can tell you, I've never did, you know, we probably could do that for years. And I never did a single telemedicine visit, you know, formally through Epic. Um, and now over half, more than half my patients are, are that way. Um, and I think everybody's doing that to the extent they can do it. I think that's a really good thing in many ways. It's a more difficult thing in other ways. Obviously, you're limited in what kind of exam you can do, et cetera. Um, you're limited in the labs that you have. A patient can go to an outside lab. They could come in another day. They could, you can go without labs, et cetera. So you're limited in that regard. And I think that's an issue for, for many situations, but not all. Um, so telemedicine is key. That said, I mean, our, we are also seeing inpatients, uh, patients in the hospital when needed. So in an average week, you know, now I, I may have five patients that are coming in as outpatients for treatment or for other issues that they have going on. Um, and I have started some patients on treatment that have needed, particularly large cell lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, curable lymphomas, whereas many patients 
or on maintenance or follow-ups we've been doing by telemedicine or the maintenance just kind of for going in. And we may come back to that later uh, if you like. I would say, so telemedicine is one big thing. I would say- John, maybe if I can just add really quickly on that telemedicine, one of the things I think that I, I assume most of our listeners are familiar with, but may not be that one of the things that's really facilitated that has been the change in, a, in a billing practices and billing options that we can now uh, bill more fully for a, uh, you know, a telemedicine visit. I mean, it's amazing to me um, how we've been able to do that. Like you said, there, there's still times I have to see patients. I would say that I'm probably a bit like yourself. I'd say about 25% of my patients I'm physically seeing. The other 75, I'm doing video consults. The, the one maybe even silver lining is I do a lot of consults for people out of state because I have a, lot, I have a fairly heavy consultancy practice. There was a patient who several months ago wanted to come see me, but he wasn't well enough to travel. And now that we're doing consults this way, I'm actually seeing more consults over the video than I might have face-to-face. -face. I know that's a little bit unique, but, but that- I want to check and see that you're getting reimbursed for those too. And yeah, <laughs> so I'll have to check. But, um, but, uh, but uh, I just think that telemedicine, I mean, if there's anything that maybe even long-term we've appreciated from this is that there may be some of those patients, those so-called so well baby check patients, uh, you know, who we're seeing in follow-up, maybe we could do more of it this way. But anyway, back to you, John. You were said so, telehealth. Yeah, so I'll just hit some of the high points and then uh, others can chime in. I think that we basically, you get off the elevator, you come in. So first of all, visitors, we're limiting visitors and really visitors are not in our hospital permitted unless the person needs assistance if they can't manage it on their own. Uh, so there's limiting of visitors, and you know that will be obviously for some period of time. Um, there are when you come into the clinic area, um, you get greeted by typically a nurse who asks you how you're feeling, uh, does a temperature check, asks about symptoms, and uh, accordingly will give you a mask and put you in a room if you're felt to be at high risk. That doesn't deal with. The issue that Michael talked about, about asymptomatic patients, et cetera, but at least people who are overtly febrile and symptomatic, we've, we don't stick them in the waiting room. They go right into an exam room, and then people with the proper PPE uh, can deal with them uh, and manage them in their setting. And then the other big area, there are others, but the other big area I'll touch on is that clearly some of our patients have known COVID, are sick and need therapy, a leukemic patient, a post-transplant patient, someone who needs blood transfusions, you can't say to that person, go, you know, stay away. Uh, and you can't say we're gonna delay your treatment because they may need it or they may need a transfusion. And so we have set up on a different floor in a smaller area, uh, a, a infusion center where basically we have said, this is the area for people that have known COVID for the time that they are potentially infectious, we are going to have them separated. They're, everyone in that area has PPE as far as the staff. And we just thought that, that because we geographically could make that a different place, that would work better. Now, could you do it so that you go left for one thing and right for another thing? You know, I'm sure some places that's what they have to do. Um, based on the nature, but I think, um, you know, we were able to, to set it up in a geographically different place, and that's what we've done. That's really helpful, uh, John, uh, for sure, and, 
and, and, I, and I'm sure, and as I know in my practice, there's been an impact with doing more video visits. Those patients who are coming in have a greater ability, if you will, to socially distance and the volume is a little bit less. So we've been able to, to keep some of those practices. Michael, do you want to comment on, on this a little bit before I move to how this has affected Nina's practice as well? Any thoughts around what John has shared with us about uh, trying to find programmatic ways, if you will, to uh, reduce the risk? Yeah, I mean, I think I echo what uh, John said. Uh, I think um, uh, it's very important to uh, think about who needs to come in, who doesn't. I, you know, don't have the expertise to know who needs to come in for chemo right now, and and who, you know, for whom the chemo can wait. Um, but uh, I also think it's really important to have somebody in the waiting room. Although I said that half the people may be asymptomatic and transmit. Um, you know, it's obviously really important to make sure that these patients are getting a mask put on them before they go into the waiting room, uh, whether they have symptoms or not, and obviously identifying these people who, you know, have infectious symptoms and being able to separate them uh, and being able to put them in a, a room where the door can close. And so, you know, they don't necessarily need to go into a negative pressure room. You know, we don't think this is like measles or TB where uh, you know, the, the, the virus can go out of the room and, you know, spread and walk down the hall and infect somebody. Um, so if you can get that room, you know, the, the, put them in a room with the door closed and you would assume that anybody who's symptomatic, you know, if you are in an area that is seeing a lot of COVID, which is much of the country, uh, and I think you have to assume that anybody who has fever, even if you think it's fever and neutropenia, uh, classic fever and neutropenia, you know, we've seen patients who we clearly we thought it was just regular fever and neutropenia and sure enough, they're positive for COVID. So, you know, I think you have to assume anybody with, and the symptoms, one thing I want to touch on is the symptoms and how, how, how varied they are. So, you know, it isn't true that everybody has a fever. Uh, there's a lot of symptoms that we've seen in people with COVID. Uh, the most common ones are fever, cough, and dyspnea. I think we're all familiar with that. But, you know, we've seen COVID present as altered mental status. Loss of taste and smell seems to be much more common than we've seen with any other respiratory virus uh, and often occurs very early in the course of, you know, their disease. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and so uh, assuming you, you kind of have to assume that anybody who comes in with any of those symptoms has COVID until proven otherwise. And, and, and similarly, it's really important if they come in to test them now to have people who, you know, one of the common things that comes up and I get asked a lot is, you know, I have somebody who has a low grade fever, um, you know, they seem fine on the phone, they can speak in full sentences, do I have to bring them in to, you know, get tested, should I send them to the ER? And so, I, I, I for me, as a consultant, it often comes down to three categories. There clearly are the people who seem very well, they have very mild symptoms. And for them, it's probably not worth having them come in to a center, you know, if they can get tested on their own, you know, outside of a heme malignancy clinic, you know, that's fine. They can do that and the testing has increased, but they don't need to come in probably to, you know, the heme malignancy clinic. We then have people who clearly sound really sick over the phone. You know, they have a really high fever, they're high risk in the setting that's there, you know, they uh, you know, or a high-risk patient, they're having difficulty completing sentences over the phone. Those patients obviously need to come to the ER and, you know, you have to alert the ER to let them know that they're coming. But then there's this whole gray area in the middle. And sometimes it's a challenge to know, should that person, you know, come into clinic? But I think if you're going to be bringing them into clinic, which for many people, you may need to bring them in regardless of whether they need chemo, because sometimes it can be very helpful to check vital signs, 
be able to look at them. It's important to assume that those patients when they're coming in are infected uh, with COVID, even you know, though you may not have those test results yet. So uh, I think you know, that's a lot of the questions that I get from my hemolignancy colleagues or how to manage those situations. That's really helpful. I, I like the way I identified those three groups, actually. That, I think that's going to help us very much as we, as we try to identify people uh, at risk. So, Nina, I'll, I'll turn it to you. And, and as I um, you know, get you to tell us a little bit about your experience, flavor it a little bit with this thinking of, you know, maybe when this started, we thought this would go on for, let's say, three, four weeks. Uh, you know, when you think to yourself, okay, well, someone's getting this kind of treatment or or, or, you know, a follow-up that normally would have come in at two months. Yeah, I can push it out to three months. But obviously, this has started to last a little bit longer. Uh, and there's always this risk that we're not going to treat, as John mentioned, you know, people really need treatment for fear of something else. So how have you been uh, approaching that issue, whether it's to transplant or not, or to give chemo or not? We don't necessarily have to get into the details of every kind of chemo, when we do our deeper dive in myeloma with you, we can talk about ex specific agents, but tell us how you're negotiating that rock in a hard place. You know, you don't want them to get COVID, but you also don't want their myeloma to progress. How, how are you finding that balance? Yeah, I think that was really difficult in the beginning because everything was so new, but now that the hospital and clinics have changed to be a lot more rigid and methodical about filtering, testing, rapid turnaround time, screening, screening as an outpatient, as Michael dis uh, discussed, and trying to put sort of triage people in categories, now we feel like, and, and how I've been practicing is, okay, these people are going to need treatment, and this isn't going away. And it may come back in the fall or winter. We don't know what's going to happen. With that in mind, all the things that we pushed off, which do include transplants, um, some of the chemotherapies, uh, we have actually started opening that up, but with some changes in workflow, which include that before, for example, apheresis, all patients are tested for COVID and are told to be in quarantine for that radius of time. And since, for example, in an auto transplant, uh, you can quickly go from apheresis to transplant, we try to make that time very short so that they're still in quarantine, come back if they get admitted again, another test. Anytime something happens, we do a COVID test uh, at that time with the rapid turnaround time, which is now possible and wasn't a month and a half ago, um, in order to make sure if someone's getting chemo, they're negative. Now we've kind of isolated them. They're not in, you know, going to Safeway and all those things. So we're, with those sort of structural things ready, we're now opening those things up because exactly as you said, I don't know that they're going to get their transplant any easier four months from now than now, and I would hate for them to progress. Um, and so my kind of philosophy now has been if you need something that is required here at the hospital or the clinic, we'll do it with uh, risk mitigation. Um, and, and if there's things like Revlimid and things like that, that are oral chemotherapies or other things that don't need to be done here, we can do that sort of remotely. But if there's things that have to be done, I mean, even vaccines, I've actually tried to get back on track with that post-transplant vaccines because I'm worried that we're going to miss a bunch of people um, and it's going to be September and we haven't done all these things. So I, I'm, I'm sort of getting back on track now that I feel more comfortable about our hospital's uh, practices and our prevalence is lower than other places. So that has to also be taken into consideration. New York is not the same thing as California. It's not the same thing as Chicago. So you have to take those environmental things into consideration as well. Yeah, I think that's particularly important. I think for people listening, you know, you have to be responsive to your area. Not We don't have a single 
cookie cutter for this talk that I was obviously going to fit in with everybody. But I think those same principles, weighing the risks and the benefits. And uh, I, I know one of the things that, especially as hematologists, we order a lot of blood work. Uh, John, I think, made mention of it earlier. You know, our, in my clinic, you know, we've partnered a little bit more closely with some of the local labs so that the patient can get the lab drawn closer to home, doesn't have to go to the large healthcare-like setting, but then it still actually gets forwarded to our lab. So it's still within our system. So when I go into the Epic system, I can, I can pull it up and it's there. Because, you know, that's one of the, 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 the greatest benefits of having people do blood work within your own system is that you can then trend it and graph it and all those fun, fancy things we like to do. Uh, you know, being hematology geeks that we are, right? We, we love those kinds of things. And so, so I, I think that's particularly helpful. You know, time is going quickly. We still, we still have a few minutes. And when I think I'm going to try to end off thinking with here, you know, we've talked a lot about the programmatic changes and even specific treatment changes that have come. And I look forward to that deeper dive, both with you, John and Nina, to talk a little bit more about, you know, are there certain regimens that you've altered in lymphoma or myeloma or, or when you switch to oral therapies, as you mentioned, Nina. But, but before we, we close off, and I think I'll start with you, Michael, um, what, what final uh, kind of take-home messages uh, do you want to leave with the treating hematologist oncologist? I mean, we've heard a lot today, and I'm not going to try and summarize everything we've said, but we've heard a lot today that if you understand this condition and how it is transmitted asymptomatically, that, you know, it carries lots of features that are maybe in some way similar to the flu, but quite different from the historical infections we've had, to, to have a risk-adapted approach to patients is really important. Uh, what, what do you want to leave with our community oncologists and hematologists listening today so that they can walk away thinking, okay, these are things that I can incorporate today into my practice. And then, and lastly, while you're answering that, think, what, not that I'm going to turn you into profits, but, you know, looking ahead to the future, are there some of these things now that are not just going to be permanent, uh, not going to be temporary measures, but maybe permanent measures in how we're going to care for hemolignancy patients? in the future. I'll start with you, uh, Michael, John, and then Nina. So I'll start with you, Michael. Sure. So um, I think one of the things that I think is really important is testing. And as our capacity, I think, through a lot of the country has increased in testing, uh, it's become increasingly available, not just for inpatients, but for outpatients. I know where we were in New York, uh, most of the testing was predominantly being done on inpatients. And first it was you know, a very narrow window, we're missing people. And then it became to the point now, everybody who gets admitted to the hospital gets tested. Um, everyone who's starting on chemotherapy gets tested. Um, and I think that's slowly begun to transition to outpatients. And I think that will be really important for outpatients as well. Um, and I think we will, um, uh, so uh, I think we will learn a little bit more as we go about what it means if you test somebody and they are positive by the PCR test. Uh, remember, there's also a blood test, a serology, and we don't exactly know if that's completely protective. But um, you know, how long? Questions like how long to delay somebody's chemotherapy if they test positive. Uh, you know, I think these are important questions that we don't know all the answers to right now. Um, but I think as we begin to ramp up testing. Uh, for outpatients, we'll start learning some of these things. Um, I uh, do want to mention something about treatment because there was, uh, if, if you, because there was a, um, we have our first news really on treatment. So we, we there hasn't been any proven treatments uh, for it, and we still don't really have a treatment that's proven to be effective. However, 
Many of you may have heard that there was a large NIH trial that was actually stopped early uh, that suggested that there may be a clinical benefit to a drug called remdesivir. Uh, and uh, so you will be, uh, your patients will be asking you about this. Um, uh, but essentially, this was a randomized placebo-controlled trial. Uh, it was going to enroll about 1,000 patients. Uh, we have data from about 600 patients. It's not in peer-reviewed form. But we know that the patients randomized to, these were hospitalized patients. This is an IV medicine, so this isn't going to apply to your outpatients. But for your patients who are sick enough to be admitted, we, uh, they found that there was a four-day decrease in time to clinical improvement with remdesivir compared to placebo. And there was a mortality difference that was not statistically significant yet from about 11.5% uh, to 8%. So this is not a home run, okay? It's probably a single in a baseball term, but it, it's a lot better than a strikeout. Uh, and so um, that drug currently is still really just available through clinical trials, but it has recently been approved as an emergency youth author authorization by the FDA and theoretically will be available to hospitals outside of a clinical trial, but we don't know exactly how that process is gonna work uh, or when that drug will be available. Um, but many, if, if for those who you know, practice in uh, uh, centers that are affiliated with academic centers, they may have clinical trials already underway for this drug and in the near future, that's how people get the drug. But that potentially could be an important advance for your patients who are sick enough to be infected. We do not currently have any outpatient treatments that have any evidence that they are effective, including hydroxychloroquine, including Kaletra, including vitamin C. Um, we hope that eventually, you know, there are obviously clinical trials that are being done, but right now I would feel a little bit uncomfortable giving somebody hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, given that these drugs can have side effects, including QT prolongation. Um, and we really don't have any evidence. In fact, I think most of the observational data suggests that they don't help at all. So um, I just kind of wanted to give that treatment perspective uh, because no, that's it great. quickly. I was actually going to ask you if you could do that for us at the end, because as I think that is particularly important. And, and I agree. I mean, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and uh, anecdotal evidence, but you know, we, we, we obviously want to continue evidence-based medicine. We haven't changed our practice with evidence-based medicine uh, just because we have a pandemic. Uh, just maybe one quick question on that before I, t I turn to you, John. Um, of those 600 patients, do we know if any of them or what percentage of them did have an underlying malignancy? Has that data been released yet? Not that I'm aware of. So it's really just a press release. So I don't know any more about the data than anyone else who you know can log in online and, and, and see it. Um, so those will be interesting. I, I presume that the, it's going to be a small percentage, and so you know we may not necessarily have that type of uh, uh, you know information for this particular patient population. Uh, and, and one last thing, it, it's. Uh, it's not a slam dunk in the sense that there was a second trial that was actually published in the Lancet, also a placebo-controlled trial, but only enrolled about half the number of patients that they were hoping to enroll. And that study did not show a clinical benefit. So, you know, it's important to, we're excited about remdesivir, uh, and the NIH study certainly was, had a much larger sample size and, um, uh, uh, than uh, the study that was done in China that was published in the Lancet, but it'll be very interesting when this NIH study is actually published and we have access to all the data uh, to compare 
you know, what, to try to understand why did it seem to be associated with improvement in this here in the NIH study, but not in this smaller study that was done in China. So I don't want to raise people's hopes too much about this drug, but it does seem to be our first uh, advance that has some evidence uh, of benefit for the treatment of this disease. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for putting it in its, its right context of balance. John, uh, what, what uh, take-home messages do you want to leave for our audience today? I, I think that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of social commentary of how the world has changed about travel. I'm interested, Joe, we've traveled together at different meetings, and I wonder how your life is going to change. That's a whole another episode of how much we'll all be traveling, um, going to restaurants, other things. I think, you know, telecommuting and, and working from home, that is going to be here to stay for a subset of people in society. And I think telemedicine is here for our practices. I think that there is no doubt that all of our current patients are going to at one time or another in the future say, well, I did it then. Why do I need to come in now? Um, I think that it, um, it really allows people the opportunity for second opinions and for other input. I think uh, it's going to be something that over time we are going to more routinely use for people uh, in the middle of care. I can envision scenarios where people don't have to come in as often in the middle of their treatment. They can get a video check, maybe a home blood pressure monitor, maybe local labs, maybe a blood pressure check and temperature check and you know, pulse ox and yeah, you look good and your numbers are good. So you don't need to, you know, drive an hour to come for a visit. Um, the waiting room, I think, is also largely going to go away. I think people are going to go straight to a room for in many cases. Um, but I think telemedicine is is going to be something that is we're, we're going to have to adapt to. And I think we're going to have to take advantage of. I think for clinical trials, it'll be very interesting. Can we remotely manage clinical trials? Um, and so I, I think that that is something that we are going to need to embrace. And that's not a COVID specific thing, but I think COVID kicked us down the road a little bit to make some of those things that maybe we're going to take years to happen, uh, happen sooner. And I think Ultimately, it also makes us question what we really need to do. Do you really need to, to give this maintenance therapy? Do you really, that gives some risk and some inconvenience and cost? Do you really need to get this blood work? Do you really need to do this CAT scan on or PET scan on a patient um, when they're doing pretty well um, based on much uh, softer parameters? So I think um, that those things are all going to come together, I think, in an interesting uh, kind of way. I, I think you actually have been quite a prophet there, John. I, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. I like it. I, and I, I agree with you. I think that, that there is going to be a component that we have to question. I think we have to balance things. You know, there's been, for example, in your disease state, which we'll discuss further in our one-on-one, -on -one, you know, there's been very good evidence that we've probably over-radiated people in the past by doing all these follow-up CTs when a physical exam can be helpful. So there's clearly still a role face-to-face -face medicine. Sure. I, I have to tell you, even though I love talking to the three of you this way, I hate that we're not physically together. There's that part of me. I, I Just so you know, John, in all my traveling, I wrote an editorial last night that you'll see soon that was entitled, We Will Fly Soon. And, and you know, <laughs> the, the notion of physically being together, you know, I have to see Nina and sit next to her and laugh with her. Uh, I mean, these things are going to be important, but I, but I, but I really appreciate your comment that there is a balance. I mean, I think in any given day, 
six months ago, you could look now back at that clinic list of patients and think, you know what, this patient and that patient probably could have just been seen by video. The physical exam didn't really, was not necessarily necessary and it could have saved the patient a lot of traveling and gas and time and energy and we can use those resources in different ways. So I really appreciate uh, your context, but, but you and I will still have to fly to Brazil someday. I'm, I'm sure we'll, <laughs> we'll make that happen. Nina, why don't I turn to you for, uh, for your final thoughts before I wrap us up? Yeah, uh, as usual, I agree with every single thing John said, and actually I was gonna make exactly those points. One of the things that has, I think the word that has sprung out of this is adaptability, uh, I think for medical practice. And I think the new PRO QOL endpoint is going to be not replaced, but added to by the efficiency endpoint. And trimming the fat, you don't need every lab. I'm amazed to see all the things we've been doing in clinical research that we really don't need to do. Um, And all the ways that we could make things so much more efficient for us, for patients, for administrators. And if there's an endpoint that can can be made from that. And I think community practices, academic practices, hybrid practices can look at those endpoints and actually make some QI um, studies and actual improvements based on this. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that sort of whole new generation of efficiency medicine launching from this because every single time I've wanted to make a change like, oh, these people can work from home or we could do remote visits. I was like, well, that's not allowed. And all of a sudden, poof, overnight it was allowed. So I know that we as doctors have the ability to change things um, when we're pushed to and we can function that way and the entire medical staff can. So I hope we take advantage of that. Yeah, I I think that's a great point to end on. You know, I, I really do think we have to question what we're doing. I think also on a personal level, who knows, maybe we will be walking this much every day. I know I, I, I sort of uh, force my daughters, despite the fact that it's getting hot here in Arizona, to walk every evening. Uh, I think someone said to me, this lockdown is going to make you a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. Uh, and so we're trying to go towards <laughs> the hunk side of things and not just eat all the time. Uh, but I think, you know, personally and professionally, obviously, it's good, it's going to affect us all. Well, I just want to take a moment to thank the three of you, your, your experts in your field, uh, I appreciate your collegiality and your humor today and your tremendous insight. I, I've genuinely learned a lot from the three of you today. And I hope for those of you who are, who are listening into us that this has been helpful to you, that it's going to allow you to incorporate some of these changes into your practice. Uh, I'd like to take a moment, of course, to thank iMedics in organizing this event. As I mentioned from the start, we have really a six-part series. So we have some one-on-ones coming with Dr. Shaw and Dr. Leonard and others in myeloid diseases. We're going to have some discussions with a patient advocate and others in a future roundtable. So we look forward to having you join us in the future. Uh, At the end here, you'll see that there is a form that you can fill out uh, to give us some feedback. We would appreciate that for an evaluation, but also to obtain your CME credit. uh, credit. So uh, we're very thankful you've joined us today and trust that this has been helpful to you and your practice. We look forward to seeing you very soon. Thanks very much. And thanks again to our wonderful guests today. Thank you. Thank you.